In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 27. The Apostle Paul is, has been taken prisoner, and he's being taken to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. But a tempest suddenly ravages the vessel that he's in, testing both the crew and the prisoners. And as the ship battles fierce winds and crashing waves, tensions rise, hope wavers, but amidst the chaos, Paul receives assurance from God that they will be safe. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, September 4th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about all the translating and publishing work that they do for the kingdom on their website at lhfmissions, that's an S on the end, missions.org. But today, as we head into the next to last chapter of the book of Acts, we have joining us the Reverend Dr. Jason Wagner. He's the pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in High Ridge, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor. Welcome back to the program. Oh, it's great to be with you, Phil. Well, I'm excited to have you here. Here we are in the uh, penultimate chapter of the book. We are ready to uh, put, a, put, I guess, start to wrap things up on all of Paul's different journeys. This journey he's not taking <laughs> voluntarily, but he is he is headed where he's wanted to go to Rome. But uh, we see Paul here continuing to. Uh, be guided by the Holy Spirit and protected by the Lord, and so it's going to be a, a good end to the journey we've been taking over the past few months. Um, how how have you been doing, brother? Uh, I've been doing well. Uh, like uh, probably a lot of folks and a lot of congregations, we're just kind of getting ready for uh, all the busyness of the fall season. So we have uh, our preschool just got started with the new school year. We have uh, Sunday school year getting started with rally day coming up this coming week. So yeah, it's an exciting time. Oh yeah, fun time. So I'm glad you've taken some time out of your busy schedule to be with us. So why don't we start together with prayer? I'm going to invite you to pray and then we'll just get right into the text. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we travel along with your servant Paul in considering the words of Acts 27. Uh, we ask that you would guide and direct us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, help us to see your protection that you provide to us, and also, more importantly, how you always keep your promises just as you keep them for Paul. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the, our, our chapter begins today with the words, When it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion. Uh, obviously, things have happened leading up to this. Do you want to catch folks up, maybe just the things that happened immediately prior to this so we know where we're at? Sure. Uh, so immediately prior to this, Paul has... Well, he's gone through a series of trials, and really that stretches back at this point, probably, what, about six chapters since he arrived in Jerusalem, uh, was arrested. Then he's taken, well, he's taken first before, and I'm trying to make sure I have my order correct here. Uh, he's taken before Felix, then he's brought before Festus, and uh, you know, one thing after another happens with Paul, and yet 
in the midst of it, uh, he appeals to Rome. He appeals to Caesar because he is a Roman citizen. Uh, well, he's been, well, he's basically been taken for an insurrection that he didn't really cause. It was, I guess, his presence caused it uh, because there were those who wanted to get rid of Paul uh, for his preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem. And so one after another of these governors that he comes before realize, well, he hasn't really done anything wrong. And so immediately before uh, the text, we have uh, Agrippa, who is the last to hear Paul's case, say to Festus, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And so uh, you have both kind of Paul's intention, but you also recognize that this is the Lord's intention for Paul to go to Rome. So in the middle of this whole section, and I'll come back to this because I think it's just sort of the central passage really in this whole last chunk of the book of Acts, is back in chapter 23, Paul receives a promise from the Lord that he will go to Rome. So this is what Acts 23 uh, verse 11, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so that promise from Jesus to Paul, uh, I think really undergirds, in one sense, the response that we see in Paul versus the response of everyone else once we get into the rest of Acts chapter 27. Well, let's take a look at that. So uh, I'm just going to read 27, 1 through 8, just to get started. Here we go. And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and, and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coasts of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. All right, just pausing there for just a moment, we're getting a lot of details about this itinerary. It's just one port after the other, but it's also showing us that weather-wise, they're already having some difficulty and the route they want to take has changed. This is not the time of year to be out on the water. Uh, that's what becomes very clear all the way through this story. Uh, but you're right. I, the, the thing that really stands out, obviously, as you're reading through this text is you just get a lot of names. First, you get uh, a few people. We meet Julius, uh, the centurion, uh, who is part of, and again, this is, uh, the whole book is being written by Luke, and I think part of the reason we have so much detail here is that right off the jump in Acts 27, it's when it was decided we should set sail for Italy. So Luke is back along 
and so he's part of the entourage, and we're told later in the chapter there's 276 people who eventually end up on, well, the second boat uh, that is going to take uh, Paul, well, most of the way to Rome. And so, so Luke's coming along, and he's filling in all these details that give us a very clear picture of where they're going. And so I, I realize this is one of those times if you're in in Bible class at, at, at church, you're pulling out the map. So uh, it, this is probably a good time. You know, if someone had the Lutheran Study Bible, there's actually a really nice map of this journey. Uh, I think it's on page 1895. So it's kind of in the middle of chapter 27. But if if you don't have that, if you can just kind of visualize the Mediterranean Sea, you know, they're starting a little probably Caesarea is where they're starting out from, a little bit north of Jerusalem. So on the coast, they're way on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, and they kind of bounce up the coastline and they stop in Sidon. And Julius, who we're introduced to, and we'll meet him again a little bit later all the way through the story, the centurion does a gracious thing and lets Paul go and visit, probably, it says his friends, so other Christians who are uh, in the town of Sidon. And this doesn't seem like, uh, maybe this was a typical thing, but uh, I, I don't know that this is usually how prisoners get treated. Now, as I referenced before, Paul is a Roman citizen. That does come with more rights and privileges. Uh, but I still think this is kind of a unique thing that's done here. And yet at the same time, Paul doesn't run away. He could have, I suppose. I mean, he's got friends who could have helped him. And, you know, he is set on headed, heading to Rome. And so then we continue up the coast and we go around the Lee of Cyprus. And uh, really what you need to be visualizing, they largely go straight up the coast of the Mediterranean. And then they make a turn. Uh, the Lee, I had to look this up. This is not, I'm not a sailor. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time on the water. So essentially, it just means on the side where you don't have the prevailing winds. So it's going to be easier, for the most part, to travel this far. So a couple times, we're going to have those references to, first, they go on the side of the island of Cyprus, to the north and east of it, uh, to keep following the coast. We have uh, regions that are mentioned here of uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, and we came come to Myra, which is a town in uh, Lycia. And so there, then the centurion decides, you know what, we're going to be making this journey. Um, I need to get on a bigger boat, probably. And so if we're going to be headed out across the heart of the Mediterranean Sea and doing that not at the best time of year, uh, we probably need a bigger ship. So they hop on a ship that's come out of Alexandria, down in Egypt, which is a major grain port. And so this was a common line to follow around, staying out a part of the middle of the Mediterranean, and picking up other cargo, but probably taking also grain then uh, to Italy. So he finds this ship. It's going to get headed in the right direction. And so the centurion, who's in charge of Paul, and potentially other prisoners, will kind of find out as we go along, uh, that they head out. And it's not so easy then. They need to go, if they're going to go to Italy, they go on to Nidus, which is the very edge 
of what is modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. So it's the very edge of that. And basically at this point, they've got a choice. They can take the shortcut and go across the heart of the Mediterranean Sea as they're just headed into the fall. Or they could actually just go north from there and they could cut across Greece, but that's going to take a lot of time on land. Well, for various reasons, probably, they decide they're going to they're going to keep going. And so they head on uh, with difficulty, as we're told here, off of Nidus. And the wind didn't allow them to go any further. So instead of going west the way that they would have gone, they have to kind of cut down to the south because the wind is already working against them. And they work their way around the island of Crete, uh, coming to a place called Fair Havens, where they kind of pause to decide what they're going to do next. Yeah, it's interesting. They, they end up in fair havens, but it's not much of a fair haven for them because of those unfavorable winds they've had to been redirected. One, uh, one commentator describes the trip, I guess, to help us understand. He says it would be the equivalent of setting out from Chicago and traveling across Iowa, across Nebraska, and then across Colorado, and then up into the middle of Montana. So if you've ever done a car trip that's kind of like that, then you get the idea. But of course, add to that that you're in these small and medium-sized vessels and you're on the stormy sea. And there's a particular type of storm that comes around this time of year that they're enduring here. So yeah, I that that's a that's pretty that's a long trip. I think sometimes it's hard for us. We live in such a big country, uh, but it's hard for us to imagine all these different little countries occupying this small space. But yeah, he's headed to Rome. Yeah, and I think when you're talking about geography, too, I always think about it when uh, you can even go out uh, on, what, some of the Great Lakes, and you get out to the middle of them, and you can't see land. (laughs) And the Mediterranean is so much bigger. I think partly we kind of lose track of. uh, This is pretty large. And when you're using the reference point of driving from Chicago and Iowa and Nebraska and Colorado and Montana, that's a haul to begin with. <laughs> right. Uh, I've done that sort of drive before. But when you think about it also in the context of, well, maybe that doesn't sound too bad if it's September 4th. <laughs> right. But if you're trying to make that drive even, even and obviously a ship and an ancient ship is going to be a whole different ball game too. But if you're trying to make that drive and it's December 4th, Well, now all of a sudden, there's a whole series of factors that could make it a lot more treacherous to actually get from where you started to where you want to actually go. Well, and Paul senses this. He knows this. In verse 9, it says, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So Paul's piping up. Uh, that's the end of verse uh, 12, by the way. He's piping up. He's saying this is dangerous. They 
they they kind of know that too, though, don't they? I mean, they already know that where they're at, they really can't spend the winter there. So even though he's warning them, and even though the scriptures are clear that the centurion cares more about what the pilot says than he does about Paul, I, still, what did really Paul want them to do? There wasn't much they could have done. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I, I suppose maybe maybe there's another port in the other direction. Who knows? I, I, it's kind of hard to say exactly what, what Paul is saying, other than it's entirely possible that Paul is saying all of this with the recognition of, well, and maybe Paul is saying, as I'm pondering this, you know, it's entirely possible that Paul is just speaking this because he recognizes the potential danger. And yet the Spirit is going to use this ultimately as the foundation for Paul's argument to listen to him later on in this story. Uh, so it's possible that Paul doesn't really have a suggestion other than this seems like a bad idea, guys. Right. <laughs> just, just sort of. I'm gonna go ahead and call it now, just so it's because it's gonna come in handy later. But, but you know, he we get some timing for their voyage. I mean, we know that it's the fall of around 59 A.D. But he specifically mentions here uh, that even the fast was already over. Well, that for people in the know that dates the text, doesn't it? It does. So the fast would be the Day of Atonement. And so you're talking about the Day of Atonement can fall anywhere from late September to early October. And as a rule, again, looking at some of the commentators, and this was pretty well-known knowledge, is that September 14th was kind of the beginning of, you don't really want to travel on the Mediterranean, but it's, it's risky, but it could work out fine. By November 10th and following, it's nobody does this. So if you're talking about, well, at this point, we're into the beginning of October, potentially. You're starting to get to that area where not only is it risky, but there's a good chance this ship is not coming back whole. And that severe weather is basically an inevitability at some point out on this journey. But... It's, well, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm considering the other parties involved, right? So we know Paul is a prisoner. There, There's people with him. That there are also traveling people. There are... But then you have, like, this centurion. You have the boat pilot. You have the owner. You know, and we think about them in the grand context of things. And, of course, we're mostly concerned with what Paul's going through and what he has to say and do. But I just think about, like, this... This centurion, you know, he wants to get home to his family. I think about the the ship owner who's just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, here's another one of those jarhead centurions going to take over my boat for a while, fine. But the point is, everybody's kind of going around about their lives. And when we read back on it, we, we see so much God's hand in it all. But I'm just, it just, it's just striking to me how, maybe except for Paul in this case, they don't. How they're just going through their lives not realizing that God is with them, even the God they don't believe in, but but he's with them and he's protecting them. We're going to see that, but it's just a fascinating setup, in my opinion. Oh, that's a beautiful statement. And really, I think what's interesting about the story is that, you know, in the context of the whole book of Acts, certainly we are looking for that. But if you pull this chapter out by itself, you just start reading from the beginning, 
it's only little by little that you see more overtly how God is at work in protecting these people on this boat. Because there is no explicit reference. I mean, even here when Paul is saying, I perceive, it's not like, I don't think we should take this as though this is Paul uh, speaking on behalf of the Lord. This isn't a word of prophecy. This is, guys, uh, this isn't the time of year to be out on the water. Right, right. Um, we need to stop somewhere soon. And it's only over time that you're exactly right, that we're able to look back on this and say, all along the way, God is providing and protecting this entire group of people. And at this point, now it is the 276, because we're on the second boat. I, that he's going to provide and protect them, even if they don't recognize that's the case. Although we'll also realize as we go along, Paul certainly has that in mind all along the way. You know, another thing, a, a little bit on the side, but Luke's account of this voyage, one of my sources says that, I think they're a little biased, but they say that this is a masterpiece, one of the best records of an extended ancient voyage, which throws more light on seafaring matters of the time than any other description. So I don't know how inflated that opinion is. Uh, he he tells us to consult a book called Saint Paul and the Traveler, Saint Paul the Traveler and the Roman Citizen. But here's my point: um, one of the things that this commentator has brought out, and apparently other people have said this too, is that Luke, especially for being a <laughs> you know a, a guy that's on the land, right? Uh, he is able to to give us uh, insight into how the journey would have gone. So while we take for granted that, yeah, he's hitting this this shore and this port and this place and he's going through this lee, we take that for granted. But if you were maybe with a critical eye trying to tear this apart for the sake of disproving the Bible, apparently you're going to find that Luke did an extremely good job and it, it helps us. Not that we need evidence to have faith in the scriptures, that comes from our saving faith, but but it, it gives us that evidence to help have conversations with people who might doubt them. Oh, you're absolutely right. It, it does provide, and it provides us confidence and material. I mean, our confidence is in Christ, and yet it then makes perfect sense that then the word that our Lord gives to us is one that is trustworthy in every way. And you're right when you get into, you're talking about some of the details in terms of uh, ship faring in the ancient world. Uh, up to this point, you have a lot of things that, you know, you had the comparison before of a road trip uh, that was referenced. And up to this point, it's sort of, we went from this point to this point to this point to this point. Although still, there are those details of, well, which cities are being referenced. This is where the ship came from. As we move forward, you get a whole bunch of specific... I had to look up a number of things where, okay, why are they doing this to the boat? And what are they doing here? Where, where it's obvious that this is extraordinary detail that points towards the trustworthiness of the text uh, to anyone. And, and you're right, it does give us a great opportunity then to point towards uh, that the scriptures are words that that we can trust and that we can be confident in the way that they describe the world. Now, certainly we should understand that in terms of our faith, uh, but we never need to doubt that 
in terms of even the details that are granted to us. And especially those of the time listening to the message, say, early on or hearing it read, you know, they're going to say, oh, yeah, you know, I've made part of that trip before or, oh, yeah, I know somebody who does that. So it's also going to be true to real life. Um, And I think one of the things that we have a hard time with as modern day Christians is taking these situations from the scripture, which sometimes are just so big and larger than life. And then we look at the own way in which God is working through our relationships and the things that we do. And we go, well, I just don't see that I'm on this big voyage <laughs> like St. Paul was. Maybe I'm just not that important. And, and I, I think that if you were to look at it from the view of St. Paul, however, he sees more of a, well, here I am in chains. Oh, okay. Well, now I can't go anywhere, but the people who have uh, in, in, in put me in chains are now putting me into this dangerous situation. So it's like, uh, excuse me, sir, you know, I don't have any authority here, but this is a bad news. And that's sort of where we're at. And so they, they, but they do make some place, don't they? They, they reach or they're trying to reach rather Phoenix, a Harbor of Crete. And we don't want to go into what happens next. Cause we're going to save that for after the break. But, uh, but yeah, anything else before we take our break? Oh, no, the only thing I was going to add really on this section is uh, when they are making this decision, it's really about they're thinking they're going to protect the ship. That's the whole idea. Well, this Fairhaven's place, no matter what the name is, it's not a good place to stay for the winter. So it's only 50 or 60 miles, a little bit further. This should be doable is what they're thinking. Uh, when they want to head out uh, to try and reach the the city of Phoenix. Yep. Well, there he is. Paul saying, hey, this is bad news. And the centurion is talking with the pilot, basically saying, I'm not going to take advice from you. I, I think we'll be fine. We're just trying to do our best, as you said, brother, to save the ship. But we'll see what happens next from their efforts when we return. Pastor Wagner and I will keep on going with Acts chapter 27. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me here this morning is the Reverend Dr. Jason Wagner. He's the pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in High Ridge, Missouri. But before we get back to him and the text, I just want to let you guys know I'm so grateful that you're here. It really is. It's a blessing to be in God's Word, and I'm blessed to be joined by not only my excellent guest, but all you wonderful listeners out there. Now, remember, if you have any questions or you have any concerns or maybe I made a mistake and you want to correct me or maybe one of my guests misspoke and you want to have a, a maybe a little bit of a discussion about that, 
that's okay. Email me. You can reach me by email at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. I'm Phil Boo. You can uh, drop me a note on any of those uh, different places just to say hi. But when you do, let me know where you're listening from and how you connect to the show. I mean, maybe you use the KFUO radio app or you listen online or on demand uh, through their website, kfuo.org. Maybe you listen to the show as a podcast or maybe you're listening to it over the air in the St. Louis area on AM 850. Well, no matter how you're listening, I'm just glad you're here. Why don't we get back to the Bible? Pastor, before the break, we were just at sort of the, the I guess the, <laughs> I was going to say the climax, but not quite yet. It's, it's, the, it's the, uh, the approaching danger of the storm at sea. They see that things are going bad. Um, anything you want to let the people know before I just read the text? No, as you were setting it up, I was thinking, yeah, it's kind of like when you're on a roller coaster and it's just tick, 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 tick. And it's as though Paul's saying, I don't know if this is such a good idea, guys. And down we go. <laughs> it's This is the building tension phase, right? Absolutely. So let's let's look at verse 13 here. Here we go. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. But when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I'm going to pause there. That's the end of verse 20. Just to point out what we were talking about earlier, a lot of shipping and sailing terms that I don't understand. And I guess, you know, Luke understands it because he not only is being carried along by the Holy Spirit, but he's also doing a great deal of research for his account. So um, just again, that's what we were talking about earlier with all these great insights into exactly what it would be like to sail during that time. Oh, exactly. Because you do just have one detail after another about how they're trying to to save the ship. So he references first what gets them into this conundrum. They think the weather looks fine. Hey, it looks great. Let's get going. It doesn't take too long. And they get this north northeaster, uh, which is apparently very strong winds that'll come down off Mount Ida in the middle of the island of Crete and just shoves them out into the middle of the Mediterranean and that blows up into a storm. And so once they're out there, uh, they have just enough of a break when they're passing near an island where apparently they can't get to the island, but at least they can get a little bit of a break. So they, it says they secure the ship's boat. Apparently with these sorts of sailing ships, the, the lifeboat slash transport boat, how they would get to you know, more dangerous islands when they couldn't port, go right into a, a port that was safe for them. They would use this boat and it was 
just kind of pulled behind them uh, on a line. So they pull that in. And then after they do that, so they get this little boat on, on the ship. And then after that, they're using supports to undergird the ship. Apparently there was some way that they would uh, wrap, uh, it could be large ropes around the middle of the boat because they're afraid that it's going to be torn apart uh, in the middle of the sea when they're out there. They start, uh, it says that they start lowering the gear, uh, which again, I had to look all this up too. Uh, apparently it's a way for them to try and slow down the boat. So they do a number of things from here forward where they're just trying to slow it down so that on the chance, as it references here, that they would, uh, it says they're worried about running aground on the Sirtis. The Sirtis apparently is a, a great sandbar off the coast of Libya. So way down in the southern part of the Mediterranean Sea. So this tells you, even before it gets to the point of saying that no sun or stars appeared for many days, it tells us at this point that they are really moving, that this is why they're throwing the gear over. They're going to eventually put out uh, the mainsail, the storm sail to try and slow down one way or another. Uh, they're doing everything that they possibly can to prevent just going a thousand miles an hour, so to speak, into this sandbar that still today is a concern for the sailors out on the Mediterranean. But that's 375 miles from Cauda. So they know they are in for a long, rough ride, and they have no concept of how far they've gone or where they might be. So when it says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, that's what's being communicated, that that they're not keeping track of time or even where they're at necessarily, and and they're just all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So we literally have paused the action at the moment that they realize there is no hope. We're goners. Yeah. They've been, they've already been jettisoning the cargo and now they're throwing overboard their hope. Also, they've thrown absolutely everything away um, because they're certain that if they have this storm just keeps going and we have no idea where we are. In other words, every means of hope that they have in themselves is gone. And I think that to me is the really compelling part. This is really, in many ways, the, the other switch in the middle of the story. Because as I said before, up until this point, you could read the first 20 verses of this, and this text could be from anywhere. It's not evident that this would be from the scriptures up to this point. It's really Luke laying the ground. This is what's been happening. This is what's going on. But there is no immediate reference to the God who is uh, the one that Paul is being sent to Rome to go and proclaim. Uh, he hasn't made an appearance, at least in terms of the text. And, and yet that's why I think that it's that again, this is where when it was referenced that it's masterfully written, it really is by Luke, because up until this point, in one sense, uh, when I read this text getting ready for today, uh, before reading everything around it, I read just this part. And I thought, you know, up until this point, it's kind of like the book of Esther, where there's long chunks of it, where 
there is no direct reference to God, but in the context of the scriptures, you recognize what that he is the one ultimately behind what is happening here. But then here we have the, the change. The, after everything that they could possibly do, you know, they've used their expertise. That's why we're going to go to Phoenix. That's why we're not going to stay in Fairhavens. We're going to use every possible technique that we know out on the open sea. We're going to throw things overboard so that we don't get, so that we don't sink. We're going to tie up the boat. We're going to do every, we're going to pull the, the ship's boat on top of the, uh, the main ship. We're going to do everything that we can, but without the sun and the stars and with this storm continuing, we have no help, no hope rather in ourselves. Well, Paul gets his I told you so moment coming up right now, uh, and I think that's exactly what it is. I know sometimes people like to—I call it church up Paul. You know, they like to take Paul and make him this sort of perfect saint, and of course he's not. And so, you know, I, I think there's sincerity, but also a little bit of, you know, I told you that we shouldn't have left Fair Havens. But here we go, verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. All right, so pausing there. Um, that's the end of verse 26. You know, I think that's a hard sell. I mean, the whole reason they ignored him the first time was because they wanted to save the ship. As you've pointed out, they've pretty much done everything they could to save the ship, and all hope is lost. And suddenly it's in this moment that Paul now steps up, or at least it's recorded that he now steps up and says, okay, this is what my God told me. But even in that context, he uses, like, my God. He's, he doesn't presume that they believe in the same God. I mean, this is just an interesting interaction. So what is Paul—I mean, he's trying to basically get them to sacrifice the ship, but that's a hard sell, right? You would think so. Um, now, to some degree, because it, you're right, it, it's a, it is a hard sell because they only slowly come to be on the same page with him. But— at the same time, you moved straight from all hope of our being saved was law as was sure. at last abandoned into since they had been without food for a long time. Now that seems like a weird transition, uh, but why wouldn't they have been eating? Well, it's probably a mixture of things. In part, the storm is so bad they can't eat, or, or even if they did, they'd probably not be able to retain whatever they ate. Or you could also take with that in the context of that all hope was abandoned was that their anxiety is so bad they didn't even want to eat. They are at the point of being hopeless. And it's at that point, I, I agree with you that, that Paul is, it's a little bit of, I told you so, you should have listened to me before. You really need to listen to me now. Right, right. So... Before it was, you should have listened to me because I knew what I was talking about. But now I have something much better to tell you. 
Because now I urge you to take heart, for there are not going to be any loss of life. Only the ship. It's the only thing we're going to lose. Now, before, that would have been an impossible sell when they're sitting at Fairhaven's. But from the middle of the storm, well, I might not want to lose the ship. But I know I don't want to die out here. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Here's what here's what comes to my mind. All the people out there, um, myself included at times, where we don't heed the word of God and we wait till the point at which we absolutely are sinking and we've lost all hope. And then God comes in and says, you know what? It's going to be bad, but I'm still here. When it didn't have to be bad if we would have listened to God in the first place. So I see mimicked here our relationship with God in, in many ways. Oh, no doubt. You know, one of the easy reference points to this text, which I, I think is interesting, is as I was reflecting on this, is really 2 Corinthians 11, where, where Paul is l listing off all of the ways that he has suffered. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten by rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Now, in part, that helps us to date 2 Corinthians because it tells us, well, it's before this because he's out on the sea a lot longer than one, one, one night and one day. Um, so he's shipwrecked at least four times, we'll end up finding out. But it's in that context that then Paul will go on and say very familiar words when he tells us that I also had this thorn in the flesh that was given to me, and three times I pleaded for the Lord that he would take that away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul, who has already written these words, then says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. We would add storms and shipwrecks and so forth from this story. And then Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You're absolutely right when, when you point towards one of the overriding themes from the story, and I really think there's two that I take away from the story as a whole. One that we'll come back to, like I said, is that God keeps his word. He's faithful to his promise. But here, I think also what you see overwhelmingly is just the reality that oftentimes it is not pleasant, but the Lord certainly does work through our hardships. The, the study Bible has this really nice little question asking, you know, have you forgotten that even through hardships, God is working for your benefit? And I think the answer for us all constantly is, yeah, because I'm thinking about the hardship. I'm thinking about how awful this is. Right. I'm thinking about how terrible it is. And, and you know what? From the midst of the storm getting tossed around in this boat out there in the middle of the Mediterranean, this doesn't seem like a good thing. It certainly doesn't seem like God is at work for Paul in this. And yet, not only will he be at work for Paul, but it becomes this opportunity for him to testify to the faithfulness of 
his God, who is in fact the God. Well, the sailors aren't quite convinced yet, because the next few verses I want to include involve them trying to sneak away. Let's look at verse 27 through 32, add it to the conversation. It says, When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out the anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the boat and let it go. Um, interesting here. <laughs> I don't know when Paul was told this information, but it's now what an all or nothing kind of thing. So they're trying to, they're like, well, we can just escape on our own and survive. And Paul by this point says, nope, if they don't leave, if they leave, nobody gets saved. And so they just cut the boat right out from under them. I, I, this is now on the one hand, we see sailors who don't believe Paul, but the people in charge clearly have, well, they don't have any other choice, and they're now doing what Paul says. Exactly. The centurion, and this is, I think, the reason why you have those references to Julius earlier in the chapter, is that he has shown a certain level of trust in Paul in one case, and letting him go see his friends in Sidon. And in another case, at least the majority decided yeah, we're going to keep going. We're not going to take Paul's advice here. Well, after going back and forth, uh, the centurion seems to have decided, I think we need to stick with what this Paul guy has to say. Uh, the the story. This is another one of those chunks where I had to kind of look this up. What were they doing? They are taking a sounding and fathoms and so forth. Well, basically what they were doing is they're measuring, well, it's 120 feet deep the first time they measured. Now it's only 90 feet deep, this water is. So they're afraid they're going to hit the rocks. And they're they're convinced that as things start getting shallower, the best bet for us is to just get off the boat. And yes, whether uh, whether that was part of the earlier message that Paul had received, and there was just more than what he says initially, which is certainly can be the case, because we don't have we don't have what the angels specifically said. We have Paul speaking to the crew at that point saying you don't need to be afraid paul this is what the angel has said you're going to stand before caesar and god has granted you all those who sail with you so take heart now certainly the angel may have said more and apparently he the angel did so paul goes to centurion and says uh do you recognize what these guys are doing right now unless they stay here no one's going to be saved and now the centurion and the soldiers who are under him say, it's time to listen to Paul. And they cut the, the ship's boat, and now it's gone. So now, now it would seem all the more like any hope that we had in ourselves. We could have at least used this transport. We're close enough to the shore. We could save ourselves. No, there will be no saving of yourself. That, And that is ultimately the point that Paul is kind of pointing back to, and that Luke, I think, in the story as a whole is pointing back to, is that 
No, the God who is bringing salvation to Paul is the one who can bring salvation to all. Well, the point you're making becomes clear in the next text, too. Uh, I'm going to read through 38. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So they ate after having not eaten for a long time. And we never really did figure out why. Perhaps here the anxiety angle is right because of the continuing in suspense. Maybe they're seasick. Who knows what they're doing? But once they eat, we notice that then they throw out the rest of the wheat. They've basically been hanging on to some of the most precious cargo till the very end. And now they've don't have anything else to eat, I assume. No, they have nothing else to hold on to. And, and, I, and the other part that I thought was interesting is I thought, okay, well, why are they? Obviously, you're right. They held on to the wheat for this long so that they would have something to eat while at the same time they weren't eating. But now they've decided, all right, we've eaten. So they've also come to the point of there's no going back. The ship is going to go down. So then they lighten the ship with the idea of, and I had to think about this. Okay, why are they why are they lightening the ship? Well, so that they can, in theory, get further onto land if the boat isn't in as deep in the water, so that they don't have as far if they have to swim uh, to the shore. Well, let's get the last of our. Uh chapter in today because it's the actual shipwreck. <laughs> so here we go. Verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The, ba- the bow struck the bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. So, uh, They've gotten this promise from Paul and his God that everybody's going to be saved. And at the moment where it comes true, there are still parts of them that say, okay, now that all this has come true and we're saved, we're going to kill all the prisoners because we don't want them to escape. (laughs) It goes to show you that while Paul's faith is in the right place, you know, I don't know. These people are being blessed by God and they just don't have any clue. Some of them do, but most of them don't. Very true. I think that's really the overwhelming thing that you really see here is that you have, in one sense, there's probably, who knows about Luke, and obviously Aristarchus is part of Paul's uh, group that is traveling and has known him and been with him for a long time, who's on the boat, but you have the sense that there's 275 people who, to one degree or another, are kind of losing their minds all the way through here, and there's one who is calm. 
And Paul just keeps saying, nope, we need, we all need to stay on the boat. This is what the Lord has said. And all of that is not just, as I said before, it's not just based on the promise here, but it's based on the promise that he has, that he is going to go to Rome. Now, the centurion, I think, is interesting because I think this kind of tells us that the centurion is kind of in a middle ground. He's willing to listen to Paul. He cares about Paul. But even here, it's wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. Well, the Lord has already made the promise. Paul's going to make it no matter what. It's whether or not everybody else is going to make it. Um, so does the centurion ultimately believe Julius? Perhaps, but but even in his case, it's no, but he is trusting in what Paul has said. And what Paul has said is that, well, if we're going to make it, we're all going to make it. And so even though these soldiers, again, try and take things into their hands because they're worried about, well, the prisoners are going to escape. And if they escape, that means, well, that means that probably that I'll be punished and my life will be taken from me. So I'm better off to kill the prisoner. At least I could drag their body back and show, see, I didn't lose him out there on the water. He didn't get away. No. He says, we're not going to do that. The centurion does. And so he orders them. You're not doing that. If you can swim, swim. If you can't, get on planks. And then all of them are brought safely to land. Exactly what the Lord has promised is exactly what comes to pass. I think we hear quite the message of not only the fact that God keeps his promises, not only the fact that God is behind the spreading of the gospel in the early church and that God is with Paul and his efforts, um, not only all of those things which are completely true, but we also learn that God is at work even when we're facing storms and, and chains of this life, if I can allegorize a little bit, but also that Paul uh, you know, and his companions are not the only ones being taken care of by God, because God's also looking out for these centurions and, and fishermen or sailors or whoever else comes around. You know, God is the God of all people, whether they believe in him or not. And I think that's uh, ultimately another big message that we get from this. Uh, last words to the folks before we end our program today. We're at the end of our time. No, I think it was really well said that uh, he is he's revealed here in this text to be the God of all creation, the God of all people, the God who keeps his promises, the God who sustains his people even in the midst of extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And so in that sense, uh, there is a fair place to do that, the type of allegorizing that you were, just in that we see how through all of these trials that Paul is cared for. And for the sake, not just of Paul, certainly for him, but it's also so that Paul can share the good news so that many more, in fact, all, everybody on this boat and everybody who has uh, continued to be blessed from the words of Paul uh, can hear that, that good news as well. That all those uh, who God has created, he cares for and desires to know the salvation that is in Christ, the one place 
that we can find peace in the midst of every struggle and turmoil. Amen to that, brother. Well, that's where we'll end our program for today. But as always, I'm very grateful for our guest who has joined us today. Uh, And when we come back, we are going to finish up the book of Acts. We're going to hear about Paul's time on Malta on Wednesday. We are then going to go into a brand new study on 1st and 2nd Peter. So lots of good stuff to look forward to. Um, And thank you to my uh, guest, Pastor Wagner. Brother, uh, I can't wait to have you on the show again. I'm looking forward to it. All right, brother, have a good one. Uh, And folks, you stay uh, stay in God's Word until we meet again, that God's peace and blessings may be with you all. As we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong name.